Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Fake News. We recorded this episode on the 26th of March with Dr. Amir Khan from IRD Global. He discussed the impact that COVID-19 has had on global health programs in low- and middle-income countries, and specifically how the COVID-19 situation is affecting health systems in Pakistan. If you're interested to find out more about the work that IRD Global does, we left a link to their website in the podcast description. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed today's episode, COVID-19 versus Global Health. So for today's episode, we wanted to explore how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected other health programs, particularly in low and middle income countries. So with us today, we have uh, Dr. Amir Khan, who is director of IRD Global. Um, IRD delivers health programs in 15 countries. Um, and so uh, to start with, maybe you can give us an overview of what IRD Global does. Thanks, Lawrence, for having me on. Uh, I'm, first of all, very just grateful that I'm here in Singapore, where so many of people here are fortunate um, to be, you know, in a place that's safe and protected uh, from, from this pandemic. IRD Global works in over 15 countries, in eight or ten of which we actually have teams and offices running programs, global health programs, that include treating patients with tuberculosis, HIV, as well as uh, chronic disease uh, management programs for patients with diabetes, hypertension, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So patients with a lot of, you know, serious illnesses that um, are living, many of whom are living in very low income settings, even um, in these low middle income countries. Um, We are accustomed to operating these programs at scale, so sometimes at provincial level, certainly city, provincial, and many times even at the national level. Um, We will, you know, be responsible for screening patients for these diseases, we'll be responsible for treating them, and we'll be responsible for reporting back the success of the screening and treatment programs back to governments. The countries that we work in, I'm just going to highlight maybe a handful that might be relevant for our discussion today, um, include South Africa, Nigeria, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Vietnam, and the Philippines and Indonesia. And all of these countries today are at high risk of really being impacted in a very um, you know, uh, massive way by, by, by this pandemic. What's interesting is that the situation in each setting is unique not just to the health systems, the social construct, the politics, uh, but also uh, for our teams in particular, unique in terms of the types of patients that we are managing. So if you are managing a program for, say, hypertension um, patients in in Manila, um, and we have about 20,000 patients in the private sector in, in Manila that have been screened and then enrolled into these programs, uh, versus you're managing MDR-TB or multi-drug TB patients who also have HIV infection, um, the, the risk to these patient groups really varies. And, and what we want to be able to do is make sure that our teams are prioritizing the highest risk patients, the highest risk communities we're working in, and make sure that we do that within the regulations of the government and within the best expert advice that we have emerging uh, from around the world. And, and from the operations that you've mentioned, which one would you say has been most severely affected? I would 
I think we have all been severely affected, but if there was even within that, you know, situation, one ways of saying which might in fact be the worst, I would, I would think at this point in time that would very much be Pakistan, largely because we have, it's our largest uh, program. Uh, we have over 2,000 public health um, staff um, operating across the country. Pakistan is a country of 200 million people. And um, there are... There are many challenges there that allow, um, you know, that, that especially raise concerns. Um, because of the way the National Ministry of Health was devolved uh, five or six years ago, there is really no federal authority that is responding for the country as a whole. And so we see the provinces, um, at the best of their capacities, responding. And there is a wide range of responses that we're we observing. So while we would like to be able to sort of have a systematic response to screening and testing and links to isolation and then beyond that uh, and treatment and then beyond that contact tracing across the country, we're having to sort of re, um, reinvent it in each province because there is not really a single national authority. So I think that's a great example of, you know, no matter how, uh, how, how much the, the Federation wishes to devolve uh, the rights of healthcare and health systems to provinces, there ought to be a strong central body that is still responsible for coordinating and, and uh, you know, sort of uh, synergizing uh, the national response. And so, so part of it is that. Um, the other part, of course, is Pakistan, um, like many other countries of its size and its, and the, and its location, has um, uh, many challenges with uh, populations that are very poor, very remote, um, are in areas that, are, that have been at, uh, effectively at war, um, internal or external, uh, for extended periods of time. So there's a lot of people that are internally displaced. Um, there is a lot of migration to large urban centers and then migration out in panic when the cases start rising. And we're seeing this, um, especially in the city of Karachi, in the south of the country where there are 20 million people. And as the numbers have just recently crossed a thousand, uh, we saw last week that there was a mass panic and attempt to sort of leave the leave the city by a lot of people who had come there as migrant workers or were there, you know, just essentially trying to get back to their family, which then increases the likelihood that um, infected individuals from, from a place like Karachi are going to go back to a small village in rural Pakistan, northwestern Pakistan, and then the epidemic really, truly becomes very, very hard to control. One of the major concerns of the pandemic is about the strain on the health systems, in particular um, intensive care facilities. So what is the situation in, in Pakistan? So the situation is dire, um, and when you consider when you consider the fact that already under the you know under normal circumstances there were never enough um, intensive care unit beds available. There are not a lot of hospital beds available per patient. Um, uh, per people in the country as it is, nor health workers. Um, even the current sort of emergency plans to scale up ICU beds by hundreds or maybe even thousands involving the army and, and lots of other uh, you know, uh, not-for-profit organizations and supporting that effort is hampered by the lack of trained manpower to support that bed that's been established. So in the best of circumstances, in normal circumstances, 
Pakistan has insufficient intensive care unit staff um, to man the existing uh, beds properly. So this, uh, you know, while we might f- be able to procure beds and even possibly ventilators in, in large numbers, the big biggest challenge we foresee is that we will not have enough health uh, staff, mm-hmm. not enough nurses, not enough um, technicians, and certainly not enough physicians to look after these patients. And you mentioned some of the variation between provinces in Pakistan and in how they respond. Do you see provinces that uh, are doing better or where lessons can be learned for, for other parts of the country? Clearly, we're seeing uh, one province stand out, uh, the province of Sindh, which is where Karachi is located. Um, th- th- it's a combination of the leadership, it's a combination of the environment in which the advice that the leadership, the political leadership of the province is getting. Um, and they were the first to start uh, increasing testing. They were the first to start um, isolating uh, patients and uh, household contacts. They were also the first um, to put a lockdown um, on the province, um, the first to stop um, schools from operating. And because they've done this earlier than the rest of the country, it would be reasonable to, reasonable to, be, to ex- expect that we are going to see a you know a flatter curve um, in this province than than the other provinces. Um, some of the other provinces were almost complacent uh, to the point where it was becoming hard to believe why there was no response. There was no scaling up of testing. There was no you know um, isolation facilities being established, and it got to the point where it became a whole. It became very political. And you know why is this one province taking this disease so seriously, and why are the other provinces? Uh, appearing to be, um, you know, less uh, panicked about it, and and so we are, uh, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think probably this plays out in all countries. Um, you know, if you're thinking of, the, if you consider the uh, the situation in the U.S. right now, you, the state of New York um, is responding at a whole different scale, um, and um, in terms of leadership, than perhaps uh, many others. And so I think this is going to be something that plays out in almost every country that we work in. Okay. Uh, one other issue that's been of concern is the availability of personal protective equipment, uh, which is obviously highly right. relevant for, for TB control programs. Has that been an issue for you? It's a huge issue. Um, we've been in a, caught in a situation where early on in the Chinese epidemic, the Chinese government requested Pakistan to actually um, ship, I guess, ship back um, to China the PPE equipment that we had in country um, because they were procured from China, they were in warehouses, and companies essentially took them back with the permission of the Pakistan government um, at the request of the Chinese government. And then, of course, the virus came and hit us. And at this point in time, we find ourselves not even able to locally procure what we would have under normal circumstances but the global shortage is really um, hampering our ability to scale some of our programs. So we are trying to limit our screening algorithms to ones in which where our health workers are in direct contact with potential um, suspects or patients is limited to one or possibly two individuals so that only those one or two individuals have to gear up. So this is a huge challenge and I think it's going to remain a huge challenge until production scales up in many countries. Um, you know, I was um, watching Governor Cuomo of uh, New York um, express that, you know, he has teams 
sourcing ventilators and PPE from around the world. And so we're competing with people with a lot more money and a lot more access to be able to get these. But we are in partnerships uh, with large other NGO organizations around the world, and we expect to be able to get some soon. Um, and are there other contingency measures that you've had to put in place to minimize risk for your health staff? We have put in a contingency measure that I think is uh, one derived from experience. Um, so in my distant past, I've been involved in investigating um, you know, outbreaks of Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fevers, um, investigating even measles um, outbreaks in a large city like, uh, like Karachi. And one of the things that you learn early on is that you need to minimize the exposure um, of your own teams in situations where you expect the field work or the operations to continue for a long period of time. So we call this the, the, the military approach in our organization. So if you have a um, program leader and you have the second in command and then the field supervisors and the people in the, the health frontline health workers, we have from a month ago insisted that the program leader and the second in command never are in the same physical space at the same time. And the reasoning behind this is that for this these programs to continue operating and for us to continue to not just operate what we have always done, but to actually provide for this much needed scale of operations that the government's asking us and that we are volunteering to support, our people cannot fall sick. So the you know there's always a um, an impulse at the beginning of these kinds of situations for the team leaders to go straight into the field to be you know at the emergency rooms or where the patients are and to start to understand what's going on and how they can help there and we've had to pull people back and we've said you know you need to consider yourself as the general of an army then you have people who go out into the front line and as a general you can go out into the front line for small periods of time to you know uh, get people motivated and keep doing their work but if you're always up in the front lines you're going to get shot and that's why armies you know keep generals in the back because somebody has to process information somebody has to strategize instruct and then be around when four weeks later and eight weeks later when the problem gets worse because the way the, the current state of the problem is is still early um, you know pandemic for us in most of our settings, where we're going to be three weeks from now or 12 weeks from now is going to be a very different situation. We cannot lose our team leaders in the first wave. And do you anticipate that there'll be some long-term impact on your activities, either in, in how you run your programs or uh, what kinds of programs you're able to, to run? I think when this is over, um, there will be a major rethink about how all of us operate in in our countries and how health systems are planned and resourced. So I do think circumstances um, and uh, the learnings from from this pandemic are going to force a global rethink. I don't think that necessarily that will then come with a lot of resources because people want to go back to you know, stock markets and all the things that run some part of the world. But the reality of, um, of this is going to be that this is not the first time or the last time we've seen 
the coronavirus and uh, any new emerging threat. And so people are going to have to be able to think through new ways of functioning and approaching public health. And then just to end with, uh, can you tell us one thing that's really resonated with you about the pandemic, something that's maybe left a deep impression or that you found surprising? I have found it very surprising how difficult it has been for some healthcare professionals and colleagues to foresee what was coming with this pandemic. Even a few weeks ago, um, there were people in healthcare, even in public health, uh, who were less alarmed and were suggesting that this is something that is going to change with the weather, it's going to you know, not have the same mortality, it's less, it kills less people than flu. And so that's been surprising. It's been surprising because one would, exp one would hope that under these kinds of situations, most of us fall back on the sort of, you know, more precaution, you know, based uh, response. Like, look, what will it hurt if we take that extra step? rather than, um, you know, let's keep going and let's see what happens. And I think that let's see, let's keep going, let's see what happens approach for many public health organizations and, and very clearly the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. Um, and um, the National Health Service in the U.K. Um, <clears throat> these are experts, you know, these are institutions that were providing expertise around the world um, and that we've always looked up to. And so the, the message that I have made public on my social media and shared with my my uh, my colleagues is that once this is over we are going to be looking at the Chinese and the East Asian countries that responded as the emerging leadership for global health. I fundamentally believe what we have seen is the handing over of the baton um, to new countries that in the just a year ago, we would not have thought of as leaders in global health preparedness and response. And however, um, you know, jarring that might sound to many of us that are coming from these, um, you know, having worked with or trained in these Western institutions, what is clear is that despite missteps, um, a lot of the Asian, East Asian countries did the right things, and we have a lot to learn from them. And uh, the next time this happens, I can assure you, I am not going to be looking for guidance from the CDC or the NHS. I'm going to be looking to see what are the Chinese doing, what are the Singaporeans doing, what, are, what is Hong Kong doing, what is Taiwan doing, what is South Korea doing. So with that, from Singapore, at the Center of Global Health, thank you very much for talking to us. It's been very informative. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another fake news episode. Thank you for tuning in. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a review either on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Um, if you didn't enjoy it, leave us a review anyway and tell us why. See you all at the next episode. Until then, stay home and stay healthy. That is not coronavirus. That's my...
Myself speaking. Self-quarantine ourselves. <laughs> <laughs>